Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, 17 through the end of the chapter. We are in the middle of Peter's sermon, and so we are going to finish it this morning. You'll remember from last week's sermon that Peter has very clearly pointed out who we are talking about, Jesus, the author of life, the Christ, the holy and righteous one. He's made that very clear who we're speaking of in his preaching. He's preaching Christ. And then he's made it very clear that it is the result of the hands of lawless men. He's been crucified. They are accountable. They are guilty uh, for their crucifixion of Christ as much as we are this day that our sins are what would be the cause of nailing Christ to the tree. Now, having Christ presented and the sinfulness of man made clear, then Peter makes the application very, very specific. This is the only right response that we can have. Verse 17 through the end of the chapter, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here's the only response. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Biblical repentance is indispensable, although it has been dispensed with in many church contexts. It is indispensable biblically. Repentance is at the core of the gospel. There's many texts we could refer to, but just in reference to begin in Luke 13, 3, Luke 13, 5, Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. It reminds you the first words recorded of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 are, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus himself certainly preached repentance. Now, just a little bit of backdrop here, just in uh, church history, but it seems to me that it's still prevalent in our country, but in our generation, there are numerable people that still, and I don't know if you've seen it or been a part of it, some of you have been in this church so long you may not remember, but 
Numerous people walk down an aisle at the end of a service. And they walk down an aisle, and theoretically, maybe it's not taught, but they begin to believe that if you walk down to the front of the church at the end of the service, that you're saved. Or it is a little bit worse than that in some cases. If you simply raise your hand, identifying yourself at the end of your service, then those who raise their hand get saved. Or even worse yet, in our generation, uh, there are even some conferences in which they've darkened the room, and if you want to get saved, you turn the light on on your cell phone and hold it up, and wherever there's a light, there's another salvation. Uh, Or there's some kind of the repeating of a prayer, and if you repeat this prayer, then you've been born again. And I think some people have probably repeated the prayer like a gazillion times, and they're still uncertain of where they stand with the Lord. Or there may be some other things that are used. And I think the motive is to try to identify people who have believed upon Christ. So I would say maybe they have good intentions, and they want to recognize these who are supposedly being saved. And countless pastors are evangelists, and churches have produced a tradition in church life that if you jump through these hoops, then that equals salvation. And it it, it becomes so ingrained in church life that it becomes the norm, that you must walk down an aisle, you must repeat a prayer, you must raise your hand. And it becomes so entrenched, I can personally say that I preached a meeting in a church, First Baptist I won't name, and I intentionally said, at the end of this service, we're not going to do an invitation where you can walk down the aisle. We're just going to pray and we're going to close the service. And I made it very, very clear, and I closed it, And the music guy got up and said, yeah, we need to do an invitation, and they did one anyways, and tried to get some people to walk down the aisle, because it's tradition. This is the way you have to do it. Now, to be fair, the Lord can save people however He jolly well pleases to save them. And a person could walk down an aisle and be saved that day. A person could raise their hand and be saved that day. God can do whatever God wants to do. I'm just submitting to you that we should not make it the traditions which is not found in Scripture as the test case for salvation. So my concern for this particular message is that it's dangerous and misleading to establish a tradition that loses or ignores the primary issue of the gospel. Now, there are many massively important things that come with the gospel, but today we will focus eventually on one issue. There's a lot of important issues, but this one's important and it cannot be dismissed. Repentance is at the core of the gospel. You may have a gospel without repentance. That's not possible. Paul even says in Corinthians, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the core of a gospel message. So if a man, a woman, a child goes through the motions of the tradition, yet without repentance, then there is no conversion. No more so, look, going through these things without repentance doesn't make you a Christian no more than eating grass will make you a cow. Just because you went through it doesn't make you that. Salvation, it's a very hard issue, is a complete change of nature. That is impossible by man. 
You can't change your heart and your mind. You can't change your own nature. It's a supernatural miracle. New heart, a new spirit. And as Peter would say, you become a partaker of the divine nature. It's very massive things. And you can't have that apart from biblical repentance. The radical, thorough, supernatural occurrence cannot, will not happen dismissed from the subject of repentance. You must repent. I must repent. My thesis is short. A gospel without repentance is the bad news of man's effort to change his own nature. A gospel that has no repentance is bad news, and it results in a man's efforts trying to change his own nature. It's impossible. Now, let's look at the text this morning. Verse 17 is the first point, and only uh, ignorance. And he notes this here in verse 17. Now, brothers, and he says to these who have crucified Christ, they're guilty of murdering the author of life, as we previously said. And he says to them, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. They didn't have all the information, perhaps. They didn't understand. They didn't have the full knowledge of what is going on. They, they were ignorant to some degree of exactly who Christ is, who Christ was. If you look later uh, in the book of Acts, you'll find this same word in Acts 17 and verse 30 where it says, this time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. You had this issue where you didn't fully grasp Christ. Well, now he's set before you. Repent. Okay? So he was ignorant, but you're not ignorant no more because Christ has been made very, very plain. Now, Peter is fully knowledgeable that their previous actions had something to do with a lack of comprehension of Christ. You you understand the confusion. Here's Christ on the scene. They had expectations and understandings, and in their mind, Christ wasn't fulfilling those, and so they misunderstood who he was to some degree. I would just simply say to you this. It's one thing to be convinced that Jesus is God's Son and reject him. I know he's God's son, I know God sent him, and I want nothing to do with him. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, I'm not sure because I don't fully understand. Two different issues. So you say, like in this church, I don't know how you could have an excuse about Christ. You know he's the one. You understand his character, his being. It's been preached many times from this pulpit. For you to say, I will not believe him, that's a lot more serious than these people at this juncture in life who hadn't fully understood who he is. There's no excuse in the room for not understanding who Christ is. But I would also add this from a note. Ignorance, that's the case of these people, does not excuse them from culpability. They may be ignorant, but they're still guilty. You need to be aware of that. Now, indisputable. Let's look at verse 18 and let's look at verses 22 through 24. 
Notice what Peter does with their ignorance. He shows them how they shouldn't be ignorant. And look at the verses again. Look at verse 18. What God foretold back beforehand, before Christ ever was on the scene, God foretold by the mouth of who? All the prophets. So you go back through all the prophets of the Old Testament, and all of the mouths of the prophets were saying that this Christ would suffer. Included in this word suffer is everything necessary for the redemption of man. The whole scene through the cross, into the grave, the resurrection, this whole picture of suffering, all of the prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed the same message. God is going to send his son and he's going to suffer in the place of men for their redemption. All the prophets agreed. They all preached the same gospel. Verse 18. Then look down at verse 22. Peter says, by the way, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. Now notice the warning. The warning's still applicable for us. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. And so now we have all the prophets, now we have Moses, and then in verse 24, we have all the prophets again. And in case we're confused about who they are, all those who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, so it's one after another, one after another, all the way up to John the Baptist, every one of them had a proclamation, and they all proclaimed something very important. They proclaimed these days that are happening right here in the book of Acts. The Spirit's going to be poured out. Christ is going to be crucified. Christ is going to be resurrected. Christ, the gospel one, is going to redeem lost humanity. And from Samuel all the way to John the Baptist, they have all preached this. In a sense, I don't know why you're ignorant of who Christ is, because there's no disagreement in all the prophets through all Old Testament history. And all of these prophets said all of what they said and proclaimed all that they proclaimed before Christ was born. And the Spirit of God in them, revealing to them the coming Christ. I would say to you, even so early as such as Genesis 22, when he takes Isaac up on that mountain, even there we see God will provide. God's going to provide. That is a picture of looking forward to that day that Christ would come, even from Genesis 22. And I could go through so many other Old Testament texts, but what we need to understand, it's indisputable from the prophets of the Old Testament that Christ would suffer as a substitute on the behalf of men. They spoke clearly about Christ. They spoke clearly about his substitutionary role. The prophets knew Christ would come and that he would suffer in the place of sinners. Now, in, when he refers to Moses here, it's a reference back to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, uh, just, just for uh, just a quick glance, if you would, just go ahead and look at that text in Deuteronomy, just to be reminded. I know you've probably read it before, but let us be reminded of what Moses says here. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. <clears throat> the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your brothers. And notice the phrase, it is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, uh, you can read the whole thing later. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And Peter says, if you don't listen, then you shall be destroyed or cut off. Let me just give you a couple of notes here. A prophet like Moses. Like him how? I think the list could certainly be made longer. But Moses was a deliverer to some degree, obviously, and led the people out of Egypt. Christ is a deliverer delivering us from our sin. Moses was the leader of the people. Christ is the shepherd, leader, great shepherd of his people. Moses was a spokesman for God. Jesus is the very Word of God. Moses was a part of miracles. Uh, Throw down the staff, it becomes a snake. Put your hand in, pull it out, it becomes leprosy. Put it back in, it's clean. Then you've got all these miraculous occurrences that bring out the deliverance of the people of Egypt. And then you see Jesus, a miracle worker, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, making the lame to leap for joy, like Moses in that sense. But at the end of Deuteronomy, one more time, I wasn't going to do it, but just one more time. Look at the very end of Deuteronomy and look at chapter 34 and verse 10. So at the end of Moses' writings, and there, was not, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs, the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to the servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. One's not been raised up at the end. And so from Deuteronomy until you have the virgin birth, we're still waiting for that prophet to come on the scene. It's always this looking forward that he is going to come. And now, increase the climax as expectancy gets higher and higher as time unfolds. Then you get to the end of the book of Malachi, and there's not a word. For over 400 years, there's just silence. No prophet on the scene. No word from God. And you're like, I have... Thousands of years of biblical history that tells me God's going to raise up a prophet, and now I'm in year 368, and I haven't heard from a prophet in 368 years. That's where we're at. And then all of a sudden, here comes this guy wearing camel's hair and his belt. He's eating locust and wild honey, named John the Baptist. He's the last prophet. And he says, Behold, All of a sudden, now we got a word. Finally, God sends a man. And here's John the Baptist out in the wilderness. And he points his finger, if you will. Behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. There's Christ who's going to take away the sins of the world. Finally, Christ has arrived. 
This is the declaration. He's going to raise him up. And now John's like, and there he is. By the way, some people say, man, I wish I had the confidence of John the Baptist. Well, note this. Later in Matthew, when he's in prison, will you check with him to make sure that's really him? And he sends some disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one? You is who you is? Is that, are you the one? And he says, you go tell John this. And so sometimes we may have doubts, may have misunderstandings, but send yourself to Christ for assurance. Note, I'm not leaving the context of my sermon. You want to know whether you've been born again? Do not go back in your mind and say, did I walk down an aisle? Don't go back in your mind and say, did I raise my hand? Don't do the goofy evangelist thing where you drive a tomato steak in your backyard. They really did that kind of stuff. Look at the tomato steak and you'll know you were saved. Don't look in the beginning of your Bible on the blank page and say, I asked Jesus in my heart in 1962. Don't do that. You want assurance? Go to Christ and ask Christ to give you assurance. John the Baptist says, I'm in prison. You go talk to Jesus and come back and tell me what he says. If he says that's who he is, we're good. All the prophets, all the prophets, we must listen to this prophets that's going to come. Now, a requirement of listening is placed upon those who crucified, And it's placed upon us in this room. Everybody here is required to listen to the final prophet, Christ. His words, his truth, these things that are preached. Whatever he says, the only right response by me is, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. You're right, and I'm wrong. You're the authority, I'm not. You're true, and I'm a liar. I submit myself as your slave to the words that you speak. That's the right response of the Christian. We're required to listen to the crucified one. Whatever he says, we are required to listen well. He says, all the prophets from Samuel, as I've already mentioned, to John the Baptist. The Greek word here has to do with sequence, in order, one after another, after another, after another, all with the same message, climaxing in the coming of Christ. And think about this. Just ponder the thought just for biblical accuracy. Think about men, these prophets, in different eras. E-R-A, eras. Moses is writing, and he's writing the same thing Malachi's writing. They never met. They don't know each other. Samuel is writing right? Isaiah is writing. They've never met. They don't even live in the same town. They don't even live at the same time. They don't even have the copy of each other's works. They're not getting on their iPad and saying, what did Moses say? What did this person say? They're all writing the same thing under the inspiration of God, giving the same message. All of them, over thousands of years, with a consistency in what they have to say what they have to proclaim. Different eras, different regions, different backgrounds, separated by countless numbers of years. And it's like they're all in the same room for communion and they're proclaiming Christ's death till he comes. At least let that weigh in on your mind. Here's a guy a thousand years before, here's a guy a thousand years after, and they're gathered at the table for communion. They're saying, until he comes, same message, in agreement, in unity. 
It's marvelous. Right? Can we not ponder it just a moment? Isn't God so infinitely wise in how he's given us his word over all these eras in unity and perfection? All the prophets, Cotangelo, preached. All the prophets preached. He didn't theorize. They didn't sit in a lazy boy recliner. They didn't wear skinny jeans and square rim glasses with a glass pulpit. No, they preached the word of God. They stood, they proclaimed, and they said, thus saith the Lord. Prophets are not pansies. Prophets are not socially acceptable. Prophets are not politically correct. Prophets preach. The Word of God. I love Jeremiah. I love Isaiah. I love Jonah. I love men who will be men and say, thus says the Lord, so help me, whatever may come, this is God's Word. We need to be reminded of that. God gave us prophets. And in the New Testament, He gave us apostles and He gave us pastors. And we need men who would be men and preach God's Word. All the prophets, one after another, preached that God would send Christ to substitute for sinners. Suffer, that's the word. Rise from the dead, and that through Christ the kingdom of God would be established. Amen. You think about a couple of guys in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, just a quick phrase. Paul and Barnabas preached the word of God, Acts 13.5. And then later in Acts 15, they returned to where they preached the word of the Lord. The very thing the apostles were doing was the very thing the Old Testament prophets did. It's the same. They're proclaiming the truth. Now, look at your Bibles in verse 19. And you look in verse 19, <clears throat> you have all this consistent message. It's preached by the prophets, and it's indisputable. And you come to 19, and you see, repent therefore and turn, and then you'll see that your sins, your sins. And then if you look at verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you. Do you see the you in verse 26? Okay, and in verse 19, you see the your sins. Yes? Both of these yous are plural. I'm preaching to the whole crowd, everybody that's there, all of you, plural, need to repent and turn. However, if you look again at the text, go back up to 19, uh, Verse 23. Now look at verse 23 in the middle of that. In verse 23, and it shall be that every soul, individual, singular, all of you, plural, must repent. But it's individually concerning you. So it's one thing to get caught in the crowd. We're all sinners. Oh, we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. No. You, every soul, is accountable. I'm accountable. 
So he takes the plural and he applies it down into the singular. We need to be aware of that because we so often dismiss and get the weight of our responsibility off because everybody sins and everybody does this and everybody does that. Yeah, but you must give an account to God. That's where the individual part comes. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be cut off, destroyed completely. It's a future passive verb. If you don't respond rightly to Christ in the future, you are absolutely going to be destroyed by the one that you would not listen to. Like the psalmist said, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Here, you don't listen to Christ, they die, they end up in hell, and nobody remembers them no more. Or the psalmist says, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, just don't lose your context here. I just want you to see the importance of it. Who's destroyed? Who's cut off? In this context, we're not talking about the most wickedness of sins out there. The context is those who won't listen to Christ. You say, well, we're going to cut off all the, whatever you think is the worst sin on the planet, we're going to cut those off. We're going to cut off all the murderers. No, no, no. We're going to destroy in this text those who won't listen to Christ. We come to church week after week, week after week, week after week. We hear the gospel, we hear the gospel, we hear the gospel. I won't believe. I won't be baptized. I won't follow Christ. That's who he's talking to. You're the one that's going to be destroyed. Because you refuse to receive the words of the prophet Christ who's given you the truth. Peter's point, according to Deuteronomy 18, is that God's going to raise up this prophet like Moses. You better listen to him. And then he quotes Leviticus. You may not catch this, but he quotes Leviticus. And Leviticus says this, Leviticus 23, 29. It says, If there is any person who will not humble himself on the same day, he shall be cut off from his people. It's amazing. I'm amazed. I don't know if you're amazed or not. I'm amazed at how Peter preaches and how he uses Deuteronomy, how he uses Leviticus, how he's going to put two verses from Genesis together here in just a little bit in the text. This is masterful how he's using the Old Testament to make sure you understand the gospel clearly. Now, here's the imperative. So we have, <clears throat> we have the ignorance of the people, now we have that all the Old Testament has preached the same thing of this coming Christ. We know Jesus is holy. We know the people have sinned. And now we come to the imperative. That's where we are now. Here's the command that's put upon us by Peter in this sermon. And the command is found in verse 19. Look there in the text, and you get two commands. Command number one, repent. Command number two, turn back. That's the two commands that we get. It's clear, it's abrupt, it's, it's right there before us. To repent, to feel remorse, to be converted. Repentance can be nothing less than a change of mind, a change of heart, to the reality of a heart that is prone to godliness. 
change of mind and a change of heart, not in theory or in words, but that leads to a life that is prone to godliness. There's a real change that happens in repentance. It's a supernatural work that happens here. I quote D.A. Carson at this point. He says, in accordance with the use of the word in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word is certain that repentance, quote, shows that genuine sorrow for sin involves an alteration of attitude towards God that brings about a conversion or a reorientation of life. Everything changes in repentance. Nothing's the same anymore. The Bible I used to avoid, I now love. The God I used to hate, I now worship. The sins I used to get pleasure in, I now despise them. Everything's changed in repentance because the nature is changed. Now, repentance is then coupled with this other command, to turn back, to turn back. To change one's mind or course of action. Let's put these two together. I'm going to turn back to a different course of action. I'm going to couple this with repentance. Just think about, like an example, a man repents of adultery. Repents of adultery. What does that mean? It means he now hates adultery. His life is so turned that his new course of life is one of chastity. No longer an adulterer, but now I'm going to be chaste. I'm going to to abstain from all unlawful sexual intercourse. I'm going to be pure in my conduct. Now there's repentance. I was this, and now I have a whole different way of living. Such was the case with Peter. Not in adultery, but such was the case in turning back. Think about Luke 22, 32. Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Your faith won't fail. Now watch. And when you have turned again, when you've turned again, what is he going to do? Strengthen your brothers. So Peter is going a wrong way. He's going to have a failure, but he's going to turn back to a right course of action, and that right course of action is going to be done in such a way that he can strengthen other people. Connect the dots. Repentance is this change of nature that leads me to turn back to a course of action that is beneficial for the kingdom of God. Listen, put it together. I'm telling you from the introduction that countless thousands walk down an aisle and they turn back to their previous life and never bear fruit for the kingdom of God. That's not what Peter preaches. Peter's preaching a complete change of nature that turns back to a fruit-bearing life for the glory of God. Thus, turn back to right conduct, a conduct that our forefathers who believed in God had proclaimed to us. Now, if you do this, if this happens, if God's work happens, you repent. God gives you the gift of repentance, the strength to repent. God works in you in such a way you turn back to a right course of action. Here's the purpose of it. Listen to it. Feel it. Absorb it. Believe it. That your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. The Greek word has to do with plastering over, washing away, wiping out, to cause to disappear. 
Wipe away, erase, to move, leave no trace, destroy, obliterate. Those who repent and turn back to the right course of action, all of their sins are obliterated. Past, present, and future. I repent because I am forgiven. I'm not repenting to gain forgiveness. I'm repenting because I am forgiven. Because it's all been taken care of in Christ. You think about Colossians 2.14. Canceling the record of debt that stood against you. The whole debt is canceled. I don't owe anything. Could somebody receive that this morning? I owe nothing. What's going to happen when you die? I'm going to heaven. You know you're going to heaven? Yes, my debt's paid. Man, you sure are confident. Uh Uh-huh, in him. He's paid it all. There's nothing left that I owe. And so when I die, it's direct interest. People say, man, I just just want him to say, well done. Oh, he will, because he covered you with his righteousness. Our Psalm 51, 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Blot them all out. To repent and to turn to a right course of action, you receive the promise of your sins being obliterated. Now, verses 25 and 26. Inheritance. Look at verse 25 and 26. You are the sons of the prophets, speaking specifically to these Jews, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by the turning every one of you uh, from your wickedness. Covenant. The audience was primary Jewish. They were the ones who were the offspring of Abraham. They ought to be the beneficiaries of everything promised in the covenant. They were in line to experience the ultimate blessing of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the ones who are to receive this promise, this covenant made all the way back in Genesis. It's all, it's just, this is the covenant God made. You're, you're the ones that ought to receive this. And then Peter takes Genesis 12.3, Genesis 22.18, and he mixes them together, makes one verse out of them. In Genesis 12.3, he, he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis twenty two eighteen. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He wedges those two together. This covenant blessing is to come to you first. You should just receive it and reap the benefits of it. But do note this. God graciously reveals the gospel to them. He does do that. Peter preaches it to them first. It's Jerusalem first, and then it goes out. But God does reveal it to them first so that they may believe. Peter comes in Jerusalem. He stands in Solomon's portico, and he says, Here's Christ, the one you killed. Repent and believe. Turn to a right course of action. Embrace the gospel. You get first dibs. But note this. It is clear, however, that they do not have a right to the covenant itself irrespective of their reaction to Jesus. Not everyone who's a Jew is a Jew. How they respond to Christ 
is the issue for the Jew and for you. You don't just inherit this stuff by dismissing Christ. Your response to Christ is of extreme importance. Now, in verse 26, now, I remind you, verse 19, the command was for you to repent. The command was for you to turn back. Now in verse 26, you have God having raised up his servant, sent him to you to bless you. He's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. How's God going to bless you? By turning every one of you. Turn back to a right course of action, but in verse 26, God's going to turn you. In verse 19, you must repent and you must turn back. In verse 26, God is the subject, and God's the one acting, and this is what God is going to do in the life of every person who repents, and of every person who turns back to a right course of action, God's going to do something. God's going to turn you away from something. He's going to turn you away from wickedness. Can you connect those three? (laughs) Biblical repentance looks like a change of nature living a right course of action, and not being involved in a lifestyle of wickedness because God won't let me. I I sometimes stumble, yes, but God keeps turning me away from and turning me away from and turning me away from. Why? Because I'm his child and he won't let me live in wickedness. The dog may return to his own vomit, but the sheep won't. God won't let them. And in verse 26, God's the subject, and anything he sets his mind to or his hand to, he accomplishes. Think about your own life. Think about all the things you've done in your life, and think about the things that you've been delivered from. God turns you. God turns you. Give him thanks. God, thank you for not leaving me to myself. If conversion is genuine in a man's life, I give you another word. I've not been pronouncing the Greek words, but turn back to a right course. Turn from wickedness. There's a third word. All these words connect together lexically, but it's not in my text. It's in Peter. It's in other places. And here's my theory on this text. A man who biblically repents and turns to a right course of action and has a God who turns him from evil, will be led into this Greek word that's not here, and it's the Greek word that has to do with a right conduct. Right conduct. Now listen, here's here's where it's found. 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. There's our word. Ought to behave in the household of God. 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. A man who repents and turns back, whom God turns from evil, conducts his life in a way that's honorable to God. This is what Peter's preaching. This is what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in getting 52 people to walk down an aisle to put on a show and to theoretically say they were converted and over 80% of them don't show back up to get baptized. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that at all. Here's what I'm interested in is good news. The news that takes depraved sinners 
and changes them so radically that they get a divine nature. And they return to a conduct that's pleasing to God, and they're delivered from wickedness, and it's evident because of the way they live on Monday. The way they live in their living room. The way they live every, in the sense of their whole life, their conduct is radically different. It's, like, it's almost like they're going through Vanity Fair, and they don't have the same dress, and they don't have the same speech, and they don't have any interest in the material sales. It's like, what's wrong with these people? Ah, they've been converted. That's what I'm interested in for me and for you. Let me give you three biblical examples real briefly. Pharaoh, examples in repentance and turning and turning from. Three examples. Pharaoh, here's what Pharaoh says. He raised his hand in a church service. I have sinned. That's what he said. I have sinned. The Lord is right. And I and my people are wrong. And he went to hell. Then there's this other guy. His name's Judas. I'm wrong. I messed up. Here's the money. You can have it all back. And he hung himself and went to hell. This is not what we want. We want something like Peter, who repented and turned back to a right course of action, turned from wickedness and self-preservation, And he stood up in Solomon's portico and he said, you killed him and you better repent and you better believe on Christ. I don't know what you're going to say and I don't know what you're going to do, but we cannot help but to preach and to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You kill me, you can burn me, you can drown me, but I will not deny Christ. This is my conduct. My life's been radically changed and I will not compromise ever again. This is what we're looking for. The word of the gospel came to the Jews and spread to the rest of the world. And what Peter preached that day is now applied to you. You must repent, turn to a right course of living. Turn from wickedness that God would turn you and conduct your life in a way that is pleasing to God. In conclusion, I just ask a couple of questions. But the question is, have you repented? Have you turned back? Have you been turned from wickedness? Have you truly put your faith in Christ alone? Has it produced a conduct that brings glory to God? Peter's gospel is good news. It's good news about God's servant, Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the Christ. It's good news about him whom we've sinned against. It's because of your sin you must repent and believe. And those who repent and believe They have their sins obliterated, done away with, washed clean, and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Biblical salvation results in a radically changed life. And not to let us off the hook and say, well, that's great for lost people, but there is at least some level of application for the believer, is there not? Is your life currently demonstrating the reality of biblical conversion? If not, why? What's going on? Are are you still on a narrow path that Jesus told you to walk? Are Are you continually turning from wickedness because God's turning you? Is your conduct beautifying the glory of God, or as John Speed said Wednesday, or is it besmirching His character? 
If not, if you're not where you should be, ah, repentance still applies. If I'm not where I'm supposed to be, my conduct isn't what it ought to be, then I should repent. I say, God, because I'm forgiven in Christ, I don't want to do this no more. I want to live in a way that honors you. I want my conduct to be orderly in a way that brings you praise. As Brother Jeff comes, I invite you to back to your text as Jeff comes to sing. And that it says, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And if you do not listen, you shall be destroyed. It's very important that we take God's word very seriously. And I pray that you would do so this morning. So we stand together and sing our final song.